Welcome to episode eight of We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jackwis, and I'm here with Christy Roberts Berkowitz, and we're sitting in my studio in the Chinatown neighborhood of Los Angeles. Welcome, Christy. Hello. Maybe we could start with why you decided to have this conversation and wanted to participate in this project in the first place. Well, it seems to be a zeitgeist kind of a topic Mm -hmm. um, for those of us to examine our own immigration story uh, in light of the xenophobia, Mm -hmm. kind of um, state-sponsored fascism and pushback against immigration. And so I have a solo show coming up next year at the American Jewish University And one of the ways that I'm kind of critiquing uh, Jewish identity in particular in its relationship to um, this kind of victim and oppressor dichotomy that we see happening in the state of Israel Mm. um, is to talk about the kind of implied victimhood I was raised with in understanding my own identity. and which was always convenient, right? So white supremacy, I feel like, uses Jews as a convenient victim when it needs to use um, the Middle Eastern Jewishness to the ends and of white supremacy. Um, so I became interested in my own family history and my own um, kind of family folklore, mm-hmm. and and the discrepancies and the realities, and I think. Even in myself, there are parts of my own narrative that I've chosen to play up and parts that I've chosen to play down. And that's kind of what family folklore is. It's like what your family decides is stuff that should live on. Mm-hmm. And then where are there huge gaps between that and reality? And is reality possible for uh, records of immigration? I'm not sure because there seemed to like even the census seems yeah. to be well in the name spelling of names get spelling changed. of names yeah um, and I don't and and I'm I don't think that that happens for all identities coming uh, immigrating to all spaces mm-hmm. but there are certain identities that um, the truth is just really difficult to find I'm finding and so I'm I'm kind of becoming more interested in the, the folklore than I am in the fact. Um, what part of the world is your family originally from before they came to the U.S.? Um, so my dad's side came on the Mayflower. So if that's not devastating to find out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I had been told that my whole life, but I was always kind of like, okay, guys, sure. Um, and there's these, but you've confirmed it. Yeah, and there's these candlesticks that we have that came on the Mayflower. Wow. And, again, I was like, okay, guys. And it's awful because when I was a kid and very witchy, I used those candlesticks a lot. There's awful wax deposits in it from 13-year-old me and Wicca. Um, it probably ruined them. Um, but you know what? That's what, that's what uh, indigenous-leaning practices hopefully can do right it's like ruin the tools of colonialism um and why keep an old <laughs> artifact as as a 
thing to look at instead of as a thing to use. Right, totally. Uh, and we have these we have these paintings also of my ancestors that were done in the Civil War era. My uh, great, however many great grandfathers, was a Civil War doctor for the Union. Mm. Um, they lived in Tennessee, but actually uh, went to go fight for the Union. Uh, so we have these paintings of them and their son. Mm. Um, and then we also have several photographs from that era. And my other great, however many great uncles wrote when Johnny comes marching home. Um, wow. Yeah. And so recently I went, I went to my mom's and I was getting all of these things from her to start using as, as material and content. And um, I found these letters that my great, however, you know, probably great, 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 great grandfather was writing to his brothers and sisters during the Civil War. Mm. Um, and they're they're fascinating. They're they're so today. They're so um, you really need to do something with your life. You should get a job, <laughs> uh, but you should go to school first. If you want to come work for me in my practice, you need to go to um, they instead of pharma they say drug school. You need to learn ah. about drugs. They call them drugs, not pharmacy. Yeah, pharmacology. Yeah, Um and uh, I'll give you my rifle, or my shotgun. He says, I'll give you my shotgun if you go to school. There's this very, like, brotherly exchange. A lot of it is, um, I'm bored, how's aunt so-and-so mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, my mom's side, on the other hand, came in the 1890s mm-hmm. from, I think, Odessa, the Odessa area of Russia, which would make sense because that's a um, Odessa and Kiev were mm-hmm. the two largest um, Jewish capitals of Russia mm-hmm. um, at that time because Jews were only allowed to live in Western Russia. Mm-hmm. Catherine the Great actually expelled all Jews. Um, and when asked, uh, but what about the economy that Jews lend to? Catherine said, um, I don't want to take their blood money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually the Jews were let back in, but they were they could only live in Western Russia. Um, I was told that my family lived in Moscow, which would have been impossible, mm. unless they were wealthy. If you were wealthy enough and had a higher education, you could leave Western mm. Russia and live in the cities. Um, or if you were a great musician, which is why so many Jewish families, there was a quota to only a certain percentage of, of Jews could be in the public schools in Russia. So oftentimes a Jewish family would pay for a non-Jewish kid to go to school so that they could up the quota so that their kid could go to school. Wow. And they would also, in addition, pay for music lessons because peddling pain we see pretty consistently and historically in oppressed populations is kind of the only way to break out of mm-hmm. uh, structural poverty. So great violinists and singers and musicians could also go live in other parts of Russia. So I was told that my family lived in Russia, that they were Russian revolutionaries, that they were arrested in Moscow Square for passing out the de- Declaration of Independence. <laughs> that they were sent to a prison camp in Siberia, that they escaped the prison camp uh, on, like, a hay cart pulled by a donkey, <laughs> that they rode all the way through Europe, 
and that my great-grandfather was born in Whitechapel, England, waiting for the boat to America. None of that is possible because they came in 1890, <laughs> well before <laughs> um, the revolution, and it's more likely that they left as a result of the pogroms. Yeah, which is why my family left too. Although not everybody left. Like we, right? We, you know, there's people who didn't survive World War II. There's people who left, but the rest of their family didn't survive. And then we have this one cousin Louisette that my grandmother always like stayed in touch with. Who I'm not sure how she and like I think if every somehow she got to France and she. And my guess is maybe she was born in France, given the, na- the name Louisette. But uh-huh. she uh, survived the Holocaust because nuns hid her in a convent. Wow. And she kept and pretended to be Catholic. And my grandmother stayed in touch with her until they both died. Yeah, so it was sort of that we, we just grew up knowing all these yeah. Holocaust stories and... Our family who left that was only a couple that we know of, we don't know of any brothers or anybody mm-hmm. who came later because they would have probably come to live with them. Yeah. And none of the census lists anybody but... And where did they... Did they come in through Ellis Island? They, I, I think so south? because... I think so they were in New York yeah. and then they were in Chicago mm. and then they came to Los Angeles. And oh, okay. my uh, my great-grandparents were actually born... were were married in Watts. Oh, wow. And then eventually settled in Riverside. So we have these really amazing photos around 1911, 1913 of Los Angeles at that time. Yeah, palm trees, um, orange groves, farming. Um, So they had been tailors. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) And like uh, cobblers. It was like shoe store, shoemaker, Uh tailor. fabric store owner kind of there's one great uncle who was a musician and one great aunt who became I think like a secretary at some point um they came through areas where there were large Jewish populations but I don't I think there was a risk in coming to where they settled in Los Angeles because where they settled in Los Angeles yeah in Watts and then in Riverside I don't to my knowledge there weren't existing Hmm. large Jewish populations I think by then, they had married far outside of Jewishness, mm-hmm. so there didn't seem to be a, a a reverence for holding on to Jewish identity and therefore being parts of Jewish communities, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I see that in my family, too, that the my grandfather, he was born in the States, but his parents came first to New York and then settled in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And we, and then they had, I I always forget, five or six kids. And my grandfather ended up back in New York, but everybody else stayed in Pittsburgh. We would go for Passover and for Thanksgiving when we still lived in, in outside of Buffalo. But my impression of them is that they are very connected to the Jewish community there. A lot of them go back and forth to Israel and my great grandparents were orthodox so it people got less religious but still so and then my cousin that moved she's my grandfather's one of my grandfather's nieces moved out here to LA maybe in the 60s to be to teach in LA Unified 
and maybe she went to school first, I can't remember, but she, like, I feel like everybody in Pittsburgh thinks she, there was almost this, like, attitude of, like, I can't believe you left Pittsburgh, it's so crazy, why did you go out there? I wonder if it's, a, a like, a survival thing, too, because I, I don't know, I don't know if when you're moving to a new place, I don't, like, sometimes I think you don't know you're Jewish until you're around people who are not. Jewish, right? Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that there, my grandfather was an atheist. So I think that by the time, I think there's just such an assimilation that started to happen that I don't think, I don't think that, um, that like the religion or the religious communities necessarily were t- a priority for them. Yeah, I see that on my grandmother's side where they seemed, from the letters that I have that my great-grandfather wrote, they seem less religious, like still connected to Jewish identity because he talks about being a tough Jew because now he eats pork. And, and he talks also about finally getting like some Jewish organization stationary because he went to temple and, he's, and that it was good that he had gone. But then he also marks <laughs> dates letters dated Easter and Christmas Mm. and they talk about Merry Christmas and it's sort of this feels like we're American now so people in America celebrate Christmas so we will too and then one of their daughters they had three kids my grandmother my great aunt and my great uncle my great aunt and her husband converted to I think like Presbyterianism or something and they were and then they didn't raise their daughter Jewish and yeah, it's sort of an interesting, I think, and my father's Catholic, but I didn't grow up. We kind of lost touch, started to lose touch with him by fourth grade. And so I've always felt more connected to the Jewish side, but not religious. I had the same experience. Yeah. My mom converted to Methodist uh, mm-hmm. when I was 11, and it was largely because I had joined a Methodist choir because my babysitter was Methodist, and would go to bell choir and children's choir and I liked singing so I joined their choir and I didn't care yeah just to sing and just to play bells and play music and um my mom would come to hear me and she and Methodist is like pretty it's non-christian-y I always Christian I always (laughs) my ignorance as a kid it was sort of like there's Judaism and there's the Christmas religions and I don't understand the differences (laughs) They're 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 definitely in like severity. There's yeah, a spectrum yeah, yeah. of severity, and I would say that Methodists are super unsevere, <laughs> <laughs> um, and very very liberal. They were one of the first churches to openly say, "Hey, LGBTQA yeah. people come here," and mm. all of those things. So, uh, it, it kind of Britishy in mm. there. A lot of traditional hymns, but. And, and long sermons that put you to sleep. But they had female priests and whole things. So mm-hmm. my mom and I were baptized together when I was 11. Mm. And and then we went to that. And I wasn't raised with any religion up until that point. I mean, we celebrated any holiday that my mom liked to decorate for. <laughs> and she loved to decorate for Christmas, even though she wasn't really raised with Christmas necessarily. So that we celebrated anything that she thought she could buy decorations for. And 
Um, so it, but then I wanted to be a Hare Krishna, and my parents were like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I was Wiccan, and they were like, okay, don't, I mean, don't poison your friends with like, <laughs> spells and potions and things. And then I was Buddhist, and they didn't, they didn't seem to care until I came home with my religion degree, and I said I'm atheist. And then they were like, heartbroken that mm. I had stopped believing in things. It's kind of a great outcome of studying religion. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's I think all that's a sham. The, I think that's the general outcome. Yeah, that's to studying. fascinating. Most most religion majors are are atheist, but yeah, by then, or you're you know a kind of agnostic or or something like that. At least but, open to all of the different possibilities. I would right. imagine because you've studied them all and you could see the legitimacy or the hypocrisy. Yeah, or most religions or like all most religions are like farming schedules, and when they're in their indigenous area, mm-hmm. and you apply the farming schedules and the and yeah, yeah and the like, relationship to your environment, yeah. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And then once you take that, once you take the Sinai Desert farming schedule out of the Sinai Desert, it's stupid. <laughs> it just makes no it's sense. It's irrelevant. Yeah, it's irrelevant yeah. all of a sudden. So, yeah, but I went to a camp recently, last year, yeah. um, called Re- Reciprocity, hmm. um, uh, supported by the Institute for Jewish Creativity and Asylum Arts. And it's about, it's for, it was for people who have a tie to Jewish identity. And, you know, I feel like I have, I've at least... I tried to be because it's a I think when you're a white person uh white supremacy is like alcoholism you you never wake up and say I'm not an alcoholic anymore I'm cured like I'm always gonna mm. be inherently racist so it's something I have to fight every single day mm-hmm. and deprogram from every single day and so I feel like I have been actively anti-racist or at least attempting to be for a really really long time which I think naturally made me kind of identify more with the Jewish side. In this um, immigration pushback that we're seeing and this kind of rise of um, nationalism and fascism, you see the comparison a lot to the Holocaust. Um, And the Japanese internment camps. Yeah, which I think that's valid because that happened here, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's Mm -hmm. definitely a thing. And I think that those are valid comparisons. The one that I found, at least in Jewish history, that I think is a little bit more like what's happening is the pogroms. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know much about them until I started doing this research. And there are just so many similarities uh, to what I see happening now. So the, they in this documentary that I was watching, which is a Russian documentary, so like I was telling you earlier, we don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the one particular incident started with a rumor. Mm-hmm. There was a rumor that this boy had been abused or killed, I think it was, um, by a group of Jews. They never found the boy. The boy didn't actually exist. Um but there was this rumor, right? And the and so they started trying to find the Jews who did this. There were mm-hmm. these trials. There was all of these kinds of things 
that started happening. Russia had already, and Europe in general, we know this, had already had a history of pretty severe, brutal, and grotesque um, persecution of the Jews, right? So, like, every every uh, Easter, there'd be a passion play. They would round up all the Jews and, and kill them all for killing their Jesus and stuff like that. But in this particular instance, um, the more... And we see this in history, the more that a group gains rights and the Jews had started gaining some rights, the mm-hmm. more um, conservative kind of racist pushback there is, right? So um, then there was a rumor started that it was legal to beat up or assault Jews. Mm. So this whole big gang of people started going through... Um, this mostly Jewish town and beating everybody. When the Jews started trying to defend themselves, the police uh, beat all the Jews who were defending themselves Mm -hmm. and allowed these roving gangs to continue to assault the Jewish families. And the big culmination of this is Uh, There was one particular building where eight Jewish families, not eight Jews, but eight Jewish families were living, and they slaughtered everyone in the building. And there were a couple of people, I think two men, who had escaped to the roof, Hmm. and they finally got them down off the roof and killed them literally with pitchforks. Actual pitchforks, right? So... Um, what we saw that I think that we're, we're seeing now is this kind of vigilante, vigilante violence that is not being policed in any way. And so it's not that... It's like the Charlottesville Tiki Torch. It's the Charlottesville thing. Tiki Torch thing, right? So it's not... Mm-hmm. The, because there's a difference between state violence, that is uh, like the military or the National Guard or something like that, we see state violence with ICE, I think, and we see state violence with police brutality. Mm-hmm. But this kind of massive state violence, we like the, the Nazis, right? Like, we don't necessarily see a similar situation to that yet. You know, it's unfortunate right. that I'm saying yet. I know. Um, but what we definitely see is an encouragement of vigilante violence. And the vigilante violence is not being punished. The Bundys. Right, that group of people oh, who right. took over yeah. that ranch, yeah, were even though they went to prison for what, like a, a day, then were pardoned and had a standoff with yeah. guns, yeah, and survived it. Yeah, one guy died. Okay, yeah, one guy. But if that was a black family, yeah, 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 yeah. To yeah of course, Black Panthers. We've seen what happens. Yeah, yeah totally. Black Panthers trying to like feed their children breakfast before school. Yes, yes. Yeah, and get, yeah and get gunned down in yeah. their bedrooms So while they're sleeping, right? So not even a standoff, like a, a outright kind of, yeah. And the move bombing too, right? Like there's mm-hmm. like huge, um, huge uh, disproportionate reciprocations or maybe, you know, there, no unproportionate reciprocations of, of violence. Um, and, and so this vigilante violence, I think is, is really close to what I believe our ancestors were fleeing from Russia Mm -hmm. at that time, Mm -hmm. because we're talking about like 
1890s. So, and part of this this violence was also spurred by um, Gezia, uh, and I feel awful for not remembering her last name, but because she was a, a Jewish woman involved in the the assassination of the Tsar, they used that as another anti-Semitic propaganda talking point that the Jews yeah. look at the Jews and look at they're trying to destabilize our country and they're mm-hmm. trying to all of these things, and, and, and they were not allowed to be Jewish citizens, and, or, or I'm sorry, Russian citizens, and um, so names are funny when we're talking about how to trace right. Ashkenazi uh, ancestry, because up until, I think it's the 17 or 1800s, Jews had their own court system mm. in Western that. Russia. They had their own court system, legal systems. They were not allowed to be Russian citizens, so they had their own um, kind of self-governing, autonomous Mm. communities, right? Um, So they had no surnames. Mm. Because they lived in relatively small communities where they knew each other, and there was no reason, and all of their business was conducted in Yiddish or Mm -hmm. Hebrew, and there was no reason for them to be, like, quote-unquote, easily identifiable, right? Mm-hmm. So when, at one point, the the czar made them participate in Russian courts, which we think is probably having something to do with money, debts, to, right. things like that, yeah. and, and they had to create surnames. So if I go back and I try to find all the Berkowitzes, in Russia, it's not necessarily that they're my relatives. It's those are people who lived in a particular area who decided that they were rocking with that surname. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that we're related. Hmm. It's just, and some of them they would like live by a lake, and they would pick the like Yiddish term for by the lake. Yeah, like my great grandmother was Zuckerberg. Berg. Yeah, it's it's Sugar Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. There's, then the other thing I find fascinating with the names, though, is that when they arrive to Ellis Island and people are told, oh, well, that's, we don't use that letter, we're going to change it to this. Sure, totally. Um, I have a a man that I had hired at Otis to teach, and I had seen, like, several different spellings of his name based between what he was giving me and what references were referring to him as and his last name Seldania, but sometimes it had it with the tilde and sometimes without. And so I asked him, you know, we're about to do your faculty contract, what's which is the correct spelling of your name? And he was just like, Thank you for asking. You are only the second person in my entire life to have asked me that. And he said, because I'm just used to growing up as a kid where I was told we don't have that letter in the English <laughs> alphabet, you're Saldana. And and I was like, well, I'm, you know, my last name, my family doesn't even pronounce it French, and then it, people want to throw C's and extra stuff at it. Like, no one spells it right. I'm just always really aware. Right. Of, because I'm constantly correcting people on how it's spelled and pronounced. So it was like, it's just something I'm, I want to get right. And it's, and his gender, you know, he's not probably around my age. It's not like, it's back in the day. It's like still, you know, being a student in the 70s and 80s, being told that's not, we can't spell your name that way. 
Right. Yeah. I no, think that's I think... changing with with Spanish speaking names now, where people are more willing to to spell it with the accents or with the tilde. And, and well, again, I think that that's that. what we were talking about. Um, you know, before we started recording, is whoever you put in charge of things yeah. starts to change how things are done, yeah. and yeah. so with more Chicanx and Latinx people in positions of power with more black people in positions of power with more Afro-Latinx people in positions mm-hmm. of power with more, you know, there's there's going to be more acknowledgement of of realities that had previously been erased. Or ignored. Or ignored, yeah. 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 So I think that that, and again, it's like, Right, this pushback of um, here in Russia, the Jews finally have rights. They finally are citizens. Sometimes, um, if they have higher education, and they can, and in some wealth, they can move to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Maybe then that's when we see this kind of vigilante pushback, right? And so, um, which I feel like is parallel to to now what happened here. It's like we have two terms. Of, of a, a black president. Black president. Yeah. And the country can't handle it. Which, by the way, isn't progress. It's normal. Like, that's not... It's like, yeah, kind of, it's progress. But it's like, I guess to me, maybe as a radical, maybe this is unique. It's like, progress to me is like no borders. Progress to me. <laughs> like, it's not enough progress. <laughs> yeah, progress, yeah, progress mm-hmm. is like a black trans woman. Not a, not a conservative... Not a not a liberal Republican, yeah. It's not the progress to me is not like war and drones. Like it's not it's it's you know. But I understand that the that the representation and a seat at the table mm-hmm. is a form mm-hmm. of progress. But it's it's um, just to make the point that like that should be so normal. If he had been a white man, he would be too conservative for most of us. Yeah. Um, I always love the Key and Peel Obama sketches where they would, they'd have the calm yeah. Obama impersonator and then the angry black man yeah. behind. And I, there were moments where I just was like, I just wanted to do a black power salute. Right. At some, like in a real speech, just do it. And, and, and it wouldn't. It no, would never there do was it. no way that he could ever. And, the, and so it's, Again, it's like not diversity is not inclusion. Yes. And even when you have somebody at the very, very top, um, that doesn't necessarily mean inclusion for everyone. Well, and he was obstructed. Yeah, all the time. Everything he tried to do. I don't think inclusion was possible if he wanted it. And and I and I only make this point to say that this little tiny effing bit is what these people are losing their minds about. Yeah. This, this is, this, it's not, like, if there was a, a black trans woman in the White House, right, that, what would you do, what would you do then? What would you do, because that's inclusion, right? Like, if the, if, if the, the most vulnerable if the most vulnerable of us mm-hmm. have representation and power, that's inclusion, right? And and this this is what they're losing their minds about. Well, I think it's that 
the pushback, this pendulum swing that we're in, I feel like really there was so much hope that, okay, Obama's president will be ready for a woman to be president. Right. And it really just, to me, reinforced the white supremacist and the patriarchal society that we're in that they didn't care who was running, what her platform was. I, I disagree only, I disagree slightly. Yeah. Um, because coming from a Republican family, mm. um, my parents have hated the Clintons forever. Yeah, it's true that that tie, it, that maybe if she wasn't a Clinton, it would have been a little I really easier. think, I really think that a, a different woman might have had more of a chance. Did your family vote for Trump? Not to my knowledge. My Mm. dad, I mean, I have, it's, how do you, how do you say I'm glad my dad wasn't alive for this election cycle? (laughs) Because at least when he died, we had a relationship. Like, (laughs) (laughs) because you would imagine that he would have voted for Trump and that would have caused arguments. I'm not sure, because he would, he would fluctuate between, like, reason and ridiculous conspiracy thing. I don't yeah I don't I'm not sure um my mom did not vote for him but that took a lot of work on my part because she's a Republican she's a Republican she yeah. finally um changed her party to independent hmm. um she just can't because she's she's a feminist and she's been a feminist this entire time and she can't she just can't do it anymore. It's ridiculous at this point. Um, because it wasn't until... Like, the Republicans didn't even really have a stake in pro-life or pro-choice until Reagan even mm-hmm. tried mm-hmm. to get the evangelical vote. Like, it's not... It, you know, she was a Nixon, opened the door to China. I don't, I don't know. You know? Yeah. She's a weird... It's- weird version of Republicanism that she was holding on to for a long time. All of it has changed over time Mm -hmm. because they were, the Republicans were the ones who abolished slavery. Yeah. Yeah. When you put that next to current Republicans, it's like mind-blowing. Well, and and here's the kicker, right? It's like they abolished slavery not because they ever cared about the liberation of, of slaves, but because it was a business move. Right, because which and then and then then it's like oh yeah of course of course that's a very Republican thing yeah yeah right Hmm. which is again why I don't understand anything that's happening right now because it's bad for business all around I mean diversity is actually better for business like not inclusion necessarily inclusion hopefully leads to socialism but diversity is great for capitalism. Because diversity makes you think that you are included in this marketing campaign. Yes. This Starbucks is now for you also. That you want not just white money, but everybody's money. Everybody's money, yeah. Diversity is great for business. So I've been confused for the last couple years. Like, so confused. Because I know how they think for the most part. Well, I think it's just that... And I don't get it. They're finally putting... White Trump supremacy is not a and smart cap- man. No, white supremacy and so, capitalism have always been compatible, if not creating each other. Hmm. And this is the first time I've ever seen white supremacy kind of veer off from capitalism a little bit. Where they're so stuck that they're willing to risk 
Yeah, they're so stuck on white supremacy, they would rather have more like a corporatocracy or or an oligarchy. So... Which is not good for capitalism necessarily. So that's totally let's, bizarre. Let's talk a little so back bit to, about yeah. the, <laughs> the Charlottesville thing. Yeah. Because for me, that was a, that felt like a really big deal. Like I've, I've hearing, Same, yeah. hearing Trump's inability to disavow the neo-Nazis and to try to say... There's good people on both sides. Both people or both sides did bad things. Like, I I found myself feeling like at least my last name is not recognizable as Jewish. I look more like my father's side of the family. My son also looks like that. Straight blonde hair, blue eyes, um, and his last name is Irish. If we had to hide, we could. And that was ter- That's a like a terrifying because I feel like the for me as a kid, yes, I heard all the ho- stories about the Holocaust and Nazis, and I knew going to middle school and high school in South Florida, I would come across people and rednecks who who were you know had a Confederate flag in the back of their truck with their gun racks and stuff at my high school. But at the same time, they always seemed so ineffectual, and they always seemed like... Idiots, yeah. Like Just kind of, yeah, the, subculture The Nazi idiots. skinheads, just like the music, but they don't really get the politics. Yeah, they the, don't have power. They don't have power. Yeah. But now we have a person in the White House who has power, who's giving them legitimacy, and I... My husband and I have conversations... You brought up, like, watching Handmaiden's Tale. Like, I feel like... Every time we watch an episode, we start to have those conversations about yeah. what's the line, when do we leave, mm-hmm. should we find jobs in Canada, Would we can, who in our family besides our son do we take with us, mm-hmm. our parents are retired, so can we convince them to leave too, like all of those kinds of questions. Um, my partner is, is black, and he is um, Afro-Latinx, and mm-hmm. he is um, a darker person in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and we lived together in a, I would say like a, a mixed neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's a, we're in the Southern California suburb of Los Angeles, yeah. so it's pretty diverse. Um, but he has had conversations with our neighbors about, um, hey, politics aside, I'm going to watch your back if you watch my back. And he, we are worried that um, our activism work or our interracial relationship um, will garner the wrong kind of attention. Mm. And so he has decided to have conversations with our neighbors about being aware of our vulnerability Mm. Mm -hmm. within that neighborhood. And then there's, of course, the, like, aside from this, my proximity to, to blackness, blackness makes me just acutely aware of violence all the time. Yeah. Because I'm always worried that he will be pulled over. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there seems to be an increase in black population in our city in the last couple of years because of the exodus from Los Angeles mm-hmm. of 
native Angelinos not mm-hmm. being able to afford it. I think that they're moving to places like our area. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, growing up in that town, I know that the police department is racist, and I know that, you know, there's mm-hmm. all of these kinds of things. So on one hand, it's like my my proximity to blackness um, makes me acutely aware of the dangers that have always existed. Right. And yet my very white passing Jewishness makes me feel like this is also a different moment. I was actually having a conversation with, um, with one of the Panthers mm. um, at Lace when Emery Douglas was speaking. Uh, yeah. Yeah, one of the older Panthers who also admitted that this is a different time. Yes, that like the, if you're if you're a black person in this country mm-hmm. it's always been fascist and it's always been violent and it's always had vigilante terror and it's mm-hmm. always had all of these kinds of elements, but he admitted that this is this is different. This, this is a unique this is a unique time in our history. Um and and that is, it's, again, it's like Jews are white when it's convenient for white supremacy, when it's no longer convenient for white supremacy for Jews to be white, everyone should be scared. <laughs> and yeah, because, because it means that it means that, um, white supremacy is willing to sacrifice some of its convenience for violence. Mm. and so everybody who has been conveniently white this whole time is is no longer we're not safe safe. yeah 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 and that and that again that feels that feels like in my research of of all of these kinds of atrocities it feels very similar to what my understanding of the history of the pogroms mm-hmm. in that um, Jews were relatively safe. They kept to themselves. They were in their own area. And then at some point it no longer, be, it was no longer convenient for them to be in Russia and, and vigilante violence and terror groups came into their neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't about like, don't come into my neighborhood. It was like, don't, exist be alive yeah yeah which i guess gets at the zionist charlottesville yeah there wasn't there that they're so scared in israel that they're surrounded by people who don't want them to exist that they're being offensive yeah not defensive yeah i think that i think that when you romanticize your own victimhood there's a cruelty that can that can take over. I had read something, and I don't remember now even where it was, but or it might have even been an interview on on Democracy Now and KPFK. They were someone was making the argument that Israel was founded so closely after World War II that the Jews never had a chance to reconcile what had just happened, and never had a chance to fully grieve and to forgive, if that's even possible, and that they just projected their hatred on the Nazis to their hatred on yeah. whoever happened to be in the land that they've moved to, which were yeah. the Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. Some of the overwhelming feelings when you begin to think about Zionism 
and the arguments for Zionism of like, but we need a safe place. I don't think Israel in its location is a safe place, and I don't think Israel needs to exist in Palestine. Well, and it was... A- it wasn't even the Jews who chose that. No, one. it was the British. Yeah, who, and they yeah. looked at several options, and it's almost like we don't want you here. Yeah. So we're the colonizer already. We can just say go to this part. Right. And who cares who's there? Yeah. The cruelty today, though, is just so. How did we get here? Um, I can't even imagine, and and you know, again, I think it's just it has a lot to do with the angst, the general angst, the propaganda, the way that they're raised with propaganda their yeah. entire life. Well, and even I feel like I don't know if you went to Hebrew school at all. I did two years, but then never finished. And I re- and it was just like after school. And I re- I feel like there is an indoctrination in Jewish education about. And even in our holiday rituals about if we can't do it this year in Israel, next year we yeah, have to do it in totally. Israel. So there's this, we talked about it being a religion of questioning, so long as you're not questioning Israel, I feel like, is what we're taught. Um, yeah, my, mo- my mom had no stake in, in Jewish religion or, or anything like that, and she was always still a staunch Zionist, and I thought... I thought I was a Zionist for a long time, too, because I didn't understand the level of cruelty. I just understood that I had been raised with an entitlement to a land, and I didn't necessarily understand um, all of the implications of that. I just knew that this feeling of entitlement to this land somehow guaranteed some sort of safety. Right. And And when you feel threatened, you want that safety. Yeah, and I think, and my mom, um, you know, my mom was raised with the name Berkowitz is pretty unmistakable, and um, and my mom um, definitely has a lot of the the um, aesthetic traits mm-hmm. um, that would be uh, more identifiable, mm-hmm. um, and so she she didn't even consider herself very Jewish, but experienced anti-Semitism all the time. And so, yeah, and that's one of the things that I find because I don't have the aesthetic appearance that my mother and her family have as much that I I have experienced anti-Semitism, but it's only after someone discovers that exactly. I'm Jewish. It's yeah. not otherwise. Or the I've opposite. Ex- I've experienced because they don't know that yes. I'm Jewish and they say some crazy Yeah, that's nonsense. where I hear it more, is that they yeah. think they're talking amongst like-minded people. Exactly. Or, or people that they think will think their joke is funny. Yeah. And they don't know that they're actually offending someone. Exactly. Yeah. So, what do you think it means to be American? Um, I think to be American is to be, um, is to be like Atlas. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous weight that I think you take on even when you come to this country because I had, I had, because of the way that the United States came to be, right? because it is settler colonialism, because it is 
indigenous land because it, there are several wars that were fought over who owns what, never with the indigenous people in mind. I just don't feel like this is um, a legitimate nation. And, and, well, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with nationhood in general, but mm. um, in particular here. And, and, and then when that is coupled with slavery, when that is coupled with um, the, the treatment of Chinese immigrants, mm-hmm. um, did you know that the, I think it's the, the biggest lynching, mass lynching in the West Coast happened here yeah. in Chinatown, seven, yeah. 17 or 19 people. Um, and, and so I think that when you come to the United States, you take on the the tremendous burden also of being a part of an imperialist, violent, Mm -hmm. settler, colonialist power. It's like everybody who's upset about Russia interfering with our elections while ignoring all the times all the, the times, U.S. has yeah. interfered with elections in Central Sponsored America. Sponsored coups and, yeah, yeah I mean, is and it... in the Middle East. Yeah, it's still upsetting. Mm-hmm. It's still obviously upsetting. I don't think it, I don't think they negate each other. No. It's still definitely upsetting, but it's also, um, it also shouldn't be shocking. Like, 9-11 shouldn't have been shocking to anybody. No. Like, none of these things should be shocking unless you choose to live in ignorance of the vast atrocities that have been committed. Um, The Modoc Indian case is a Supreme Court case, um, which I learned about, by the way, shout out to Alexander Reed Ross, who wrote Against the Fascist Creeps, a friend of mine, and that book is amazing, and you should check it out. Um, So in this book, I learned about the Modoc Indian case, which was a Supreme Court case that gave license to settlers Mm -hmm. to kill Native Americans with impunity and it used this notion of Native Americans being um, an idea an idea of primitive man or original man it actually comes from a Roman term and it's been used historically throughout European traditions to kill indigenous or more primitive tribal um, populations, as long as you leave like a couple alive as an artifact of primitive living, but there's no reason these aren't people or individuals with lives, they're an idea. And so, as long as we have a couple of the idea of First Nations people, the, the actual individuals themselves don't exist. They they are just an impediment to settling mm-hmm. the West. And so it was actually a Supreme Court decision that you could murder them with impunity. Wow. Um, and that is, you know, where we start to see, it's like, that's a form of fascism that happened in the 18, oh, was it, had to be like 1830s to 1880s, something, something like that. And... So, I mean, to me, what does it mean to be an American? It means it means a tremendous weight. It means that I live on occupied land and I'm an occupier, and mm-hmm. I can't um, I can't deny any of that. And at the same time, I think that there are moments 
of American history for immigrants in particular where there was promise you could reinvent yourself you could you could make an entirety entirely different name for yourself mm-hmm. and live a completely anonymous new life and so I also think that there are these moments where certain personalities who are self engineering and self-reliant have more of a chance here historically than perhaps in other places. Chomsky has talked about how the U.S. is actually the most likely place for like an anarchist federation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of the, the kind of individualist values that are promoted in the U.S. And there's something a little beautiful to me in that because I don't think that my best effort in the revolution is tilling the fields um I'm gonna be the worst like I'm gonna complain I'm gonna be like oh my god it's so hot like do you I hate that there's dirt on my nails do you hate I hate it my makeup is dripping and my eyes I hate this and like that's gonna be it's gonna be miserable to till the fields with me you know so like, my best effort is as an artist, is as, as a culture worker. And there are aspects to, to like, Maoist communism and, and these kinds of other structures that I don't find um, honor our individual lives and how power has a place in our individual lives like anarchism does. And so, for me, the United States is also this place that, like, somehow honors my individuality and yeah. and that allows that allows people like Lucy Parsons to exist, that allows people like Emma Goldman to exist, that allows people like Lolita LeBron to exist, that allows all of my like and Bell Hooks and all of my kind mm-hmm. of heroes and Audrey Lord and for us to be not members of a group but individuals in a group. Right. That I find uniquely American, um, so it's this it's this burden, and it's also the 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 crushing weight of something sometimes produces some diamonds. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the 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 problem is that then America tries to sell the diamonds. <laughs> what are you hopeful for? <sighs> <laughs> if anything. Oh, man. Okay, I might get a little teary. Because um, I was thinking about this on the way here. Um, I did a performance over the weekend that uh, was supposed to be super pessimistic and um, almost accusatory. <laughs> Um, about feeling let down by the art world and this rig that we had set up for the audience to be able to interact with me and actually let me down and raise me up. Because mm-hmm. you were hanging from hanging a bridge, from a bridge. structure, yeah. Yeah. Um, at the last minute was going to be unsafe. And unbeknownst to me, my crew, who also is my chosen family, um which as a queer person is a is is a pretty normal experience to have a chosen family um decided 
on this other setup, mm-hmm. which I had no idea. Because you were already in the fabric hanging, not knowing, and no one was talking to you, telling you what, what I, was going to happen. I was walking. I, I was going to make an entrance, so I, I had a long time to walk in, but okay. the person they had assigned to me as my handler, everybody knows me well enough and, and my Jewishness. And anxiety well enough to keep a lot of information from me. Uh, And so there was a lot of people keeping things from me about exactly how this was going to happen. And they mm -hmm. kind of loosely told me very nonchalantly Mm -hmm. what was going to happen. And I just had to go with it because we're here. It's go time. I've got smoke bombs. Like, we're here. Um, And so I got into the thing and I just went with it in this truck ended up this ranger vehicle actually ended up being the thing that raised me up to the belly of the bridge but I thought they just put the truck there and then it's just there and it's in park and it's whatever and now the truck is there um I found out way long afterwards when we were on the way home that my friends had to actually take turns and shift keeping their foot on the brake of the vehicle because it didn't have an emergency brake or else I would have started to come down Mm -hmm. from the bridge. And there was something about, um, because I have this saying that I realized shortly after the election, which is if we can't keep each other safe, we must keep each other loved. Mm -hmm. So I had given up on safety. And I decided to instead focus all of my attention on keeping everybody in my life loved. Mm-hmm. And because even in the best of possible worlds, you know, Acme and Bills could fall from the sky. Right? <laughs> so, um, and this, this, this moment of realizing that this group of people together uh, didn't let me down so much so that they even kept me safe. Yeah. That it went beyond love to safety. Yeah, it went mm-hmm. it went back to safety from love and that to me was hopeful. That's the most hope I've had since 119. Mm-hmm. Um and I ha- I I have also turned a lot of my efforts to like self-reliant communities to making sure that we understand how to purify our own water and how to how to just be no longer reliant on mm-hmm. government services. Um, if for if and when they fail. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and so this was like a confirmation that as communities perhaps we can sometimes keep each other safe. Yeah. I mean, I cried thinking about it, that realization. Yeah. Well, thank you for participating in this conversation with me. Thank you for having it. Yeah. Yeah.